My name is Pat Spaulding, and I'm really happy to be the MC of True Tales Live, which is a program that uh, is recorded and airs on uh, PPM-TV, Portsmouth Public Media Television. We will have six storytellers tonight, and they'll all be telling uh, a true story from their own personal life experience about the influence of family. We all have them. <laughs> and I do believe we are all influenced by them. Um, I'm going to introduce people individually, so I won't tell you more about uh, who'll be telling. I'll, I'll do that before each storyteller comes up. But right now, I would like to ask John Levering to come up and introduce a little information about True Tales Live. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for showing up tonight. I appreciate that. That's, this, this is great. Uh, last time, we only had two people. And, uh, <laughs> Just, just kidding. And, and one of them was a storyteller. No. Um, um, yes, uh, Portsmouth Public Media TV is our new home. We have a different theme each month, and we invite uh, five or six storytellers. I guess we're going to be doing five at the uh, TV show, because after the five storytellers are done, and this takes place from 6.30 to 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night, uh, the last Tuesday of the month, uh, after the storytellers are done, Pat and Dave, David Prina, who's going to be one of the storytellers tonight, are our interviewers, and they interview one of the storytellers for about 15 minutes. So that, that makes the program. Okay, thank I forgot to mention that John is the producer of True Tales Live. Ooh. And yes, it's his baby. <laughs> and um, David Freiner, who will be telling a story, is the... <laughs> Stage manager? Stage coach. Stage coach, okay. <laughs> same, same difference. Okay, but now let's get on with it so our first storytellers won't continue to be nervous. We've got an interesting grouping of uh, two stories to start with. Um, there's mother and son combo. And uh, this story will take place in Exeter. It's a local story. A lot of our stories tonight are local. Um, and the first teller will be Carol Walrzak. And she's a retired school teacher who became an interfaith minister. Owner of a sacred touch, she is now committed to the transformation of self and planet Earth through education, ordination, support, celebration, and service. Good things. Carol conducts sacred ceremonies such as weddings, memorial services, funerals, and rituals as creatively unlikely as pet blessings, and baby namings. <laughs> For over 30 years, she and her husband Eric owned and operated a 200-site recreational campground called the Exeter Elms Family Campground. Anybody know of that? Yep. Okay. This true story, which dates back to 1988, will be told in two parts from two separate points of view. First, from the mothers. We'll hear how Carol understood this story to unfold. Then, we'll hear what her son Seth remembers from that day. Let's begin with Carol's version of The Sting, part one. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's really nice to be here. Um, my husband and I did build this campground from scratch. We started in 1979, and Seth was... He was almost four years old, and um, it was a family business. It, my father-in-law was involved, 
Seth's great uncle was involved. We employed every cousin that we could find, and uh, and we did that for we did this business for over thirty years. So um, I don't know if you've been there, but it is uh, located on the Exeter River. There's a there was a mile of frontage on the river, and um, for a long time, Rick's dad was in construction, and he had no way to get to that back property. And all of a sudden, there was a place called the Clamshell. It was a little takeout restaurant. The fellow who owned that sold the property, and lo and behold, we had a right-of-way to build this campground. So uh, we were open May 1st, October 1st, and we were about 10 miles from Hampton Beach, an hour from Boston, an hour from Portland, and we really provided a wonderful camping experience for thousands of people. This experience included fishing, kayaking, canoeing, recreation programs. Um, you could do everything from badminton to swimming. We had a pool, a rec building, uh, a store, basketball court. You know, it was a lot going on. We had such notable campers as the Moonies, real honest-to-goodness gypsies who came with hobbled chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Seabrook Power Plant, remember when there were protesters and there were people working there? Well, they decided to all camp at our campground. So we put them in separate parts of the campground to keep the peace. <laughs> we also had um, politicians, soap opera stars, Reverend Pat Robertson was there, and a New York fashion model who camped with high heels and leotards. <laughs> she loved prancing up the graveled road. So we did cater to people from all walks of life, including the homeless. So this evening, I'm going to tell one story out of probably a thousand stories I could tell. It did take place in 1988, and it is called The Sting. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's July 5th, 1988, a busy 4th of July weekend at the Exeter Elms Campground, where we expect close to a 1,000 campers. Every site is filled for four days. The weather is perfect for camping. The Exeter River is pristine for kayaking and canoeing. The store is stocked with everything from marshmallows to firewood. The game room is up and running, and the rec director is planning a variety of games and tournaments. So I'm in the campground office working really hard, registering campers, when I get a phone call. Mind you, I've changed all the names just to protect people, the innocent and the guilty. Okay. And it's Lieutenant Raymond of the Exeter Police Department, and he calls with an emergency request. He is looking for a black Plymouth Voyager van from Massachusetts. He gave me the license plate numbers. So at that time, we didn't have a computer reservation system, so I had a box, and I went in the back room. I was grumbling, but I did get away from the ringing of phones and the onslaught of customers, and I had to check the paperwork all by hand to look for this plate. I am not a happy camper. <laughs> now, I had momentarily forgotten that my mother was visiting from out of town, and she was at our house, which was maybe an eighth of a mile up the road from the office. And uh, she's looking forward to a lobster dinner that evening. So I give her a call, and her southern drawl comes over the phone. Caroline, is there anything I can do for you for the lobster dinner? 
And I say, well, Mom, we should all be home by 6 o'clock. If you could set the table, that would be really, really nice. Then I kind of forgot about it. So I continued to search for this mass plate. And wouldn't you know, I look, and there is the van registered at the campground. The campground is named all, it's in circles. It's named after trees. And this was the Oak Circle. And I find the plate, and I give Lieutenant Raymond a call. And I tell him, yes, this plate is here, and it's registered to a Roger Bingham, two adults, two kids, a dog, and a visitor. He also has a 30-foot motorhome, which, by the way, I found out was stolen later. <laughs> Bingham is definitely camping with his family, but he also reg registered a visitor by the name of Leroy Smith, who was driving some kind of a Chevy truck. Fifteen minutes later, Lieutenant Raymond and Chief Terrio come in the office, along with three Exeter police cars and two state troopers. <laughs> Their sensational entrance leads to a chain of events during the next few hours that leave a lasting impression on our family, our staff, and our campers. The chief finally explains why he's looking for a black van. Two armed men held up a Rite Aid pharmacy in Amesbury, Mass, and they stole drugs and cash. They made everybody who worked there face down on the floor. They were armed. What they didn't know is the owner of the pharmacy was hiding in a closet and didn't come out, of course. He waited, the owner waited till they left and decided to trail them. And as he did, he went on to 150, coming into Exeter, and he managed to get the license plate number. That's how we knew what the plate number was. And, uh, but then he lost them, but he went directly to the police station and gave them the information. So their suspects, uh, Roger and Leroy, and my husband's like shaking his head in disbelief. This guy was an exemplary camper. He played with all the kids. He helped with the recreation. He paid for all of his visitors. He followed every rule in the campground, and that's unusual. <laughs> so we learn that he has a record, and Leroy Smith is probably an alias. So um, we are concerned about all those cruisers and police cars out in the parking lot because people are beginning to ask some questions like, what is going on at your campground? We're also concerned about safety. The chief explains his plan to arrest these two suspects. So we, we learn they're not at their campsite, and that's probably a good thing at the time. And what he did is he put unmarked cars on Route 150, Routes 108, North and South. He put an unmarked car in the parking lot right by the office, and he put one down by the store, which, by the way, was a half a mile away, and another one down there as well, all unmarked, all kind of hidden away, police officers not in their uniforms. So that's what happened. And uh, what he's hoping is that both men are taken into custody uh, before they come into the campground, which is really what we hoped as well. <laughs> now, this is 1988, mind you, and there's no cell phones in the campground. There's no landlines down there either. So the only way we could communicate was by walkie-talkie. 
The police are discussing, they tell us not to talk about it on our walkie-talkies, but they're discussing this whole thing over their frequencies. Little do they know that the seasonal campers have radios down there. <laughs> so they're getting just tidbits of information about what's going on and gossiping with everybody that they know. So what happened was there was some information that came through about a black van, and they misconstrued it and decided that the culprit was a black man who was camping in a different section of the campground, you see. So we meet with staff, my husband and I. We give brief descriptions of what these guys look like. And um, if either suspect is spotted, they are to radio the office with the code word ice cream used in a sentence. <laughs> My job is to monitor walkie-talkie dispatches for ice cream messages and physically run to the parking lot and um, talk to the unmarked police car out there. If, if we should spot them, somehow they get by the office. The chief's last warning is directed at me, and he said, Carol, if you hear shooting, I want you to hit the deck. Now, Seth. Seth is 13. He's working in the store alone. He insists to this day that we put his life on the line when he was only 13. <laughs> I can honestly say that I remember suffering really high anxiety because it was all I could do to cope with a busy weekend, let alone a police sting. And I wasn't really in my touch with in touch with my feelings about my dear son in the store and how it might affect him. And you're going to hear about that in just a little while. So it's now 6 p.m. Wasn't I supposed to be home boiling lobster? Mm-hmm. Cambers are going about their daily business without knowledge of the sting, and my stomach is just churning with angst. It's early evening. Most of the campers by then have checked in. It's pretty quiet in the office, and the unmarked police car is parked right outside. The office door opens, and in walks Roger Bingham in the flesh. Big, blonde, burly Roger Bingham. Luckily, he was talking to another guy, and he didn't see the shocked recognition on my face. Again, he was being honest. He was registering a guest. And I just played along with it, you know, and had to fill out all that information. And he gave me a $50 bill. He always gave me $50 bills, now that I remember. The car drives off, and I sprint out to the cruiser yelling, That's your man! Go get him! He just went into the campground. So the officer radios his cronies, and he disappears down the campground road. I return to the office feeling alone and rather frightened. Bingham is arrested and quietly handcuffed in the oak section where he was camping in front of his wife and two children. Uh, unfortunately, men, women, and children, mostly French-Canadian, were witnessing this event as well because they were camping nearby. Leroy Smith wasn't with him, but he hitched a ride. And later on, he just kind of zoomed in with a stranger in a VW bug. And he was wearing a Joe Camel t-shirt, I understand. As he came to the scene with Bingham down on his knees, being handcuffed, he saw that, and he took off at a run. So he's not, he's not spotted by the police again 
But he is spotted by Jack, one of our security men, um, who decides to tackle him. Oh. <laughs> he tackles him right down to the ground. And uh, next thing I know, I get the radio goes off. Carol, the ice cream has landed. <laughs> so, luckily he wasn't armed and dangerous, you know, that could have been an issue, but he wasn't, so he was also arrested. Now, at 9 o'clock that night, remember the lobster dinner was at 6, my husband calls a meeting, a campground meeting. He wants to dispel rumors of what happened and to let people know about the sting. Um, he claims it is the best attended meeting in the history of the Exeter Elms campground. As he speaks in English, a volunteer interprets in French so that our French-Canadian clientele really know what's going on. He also apologizes to an unknown man who was taking a shower when the police ordered him out with his hands up. <laughs> so after the meeting, Security alerts the office to report that Bingham's wife and that friend that came in to register, they were, had flashlights and they were looking around our, our dirt pile in the woods on the access road. So I called the police again. They came, but they didn't find any drugs or cash. And so they were not arrested. At 11 p.m., our family sits down for a much-deserved lobster dinner. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and now we're going to have Seth's version. Uh, Seth is the director of Sacred Service Ministry at the Unity on the River Church in Amesbury, Massachusetts. When not serving the Lord, he works for the devil. <laughs> this is according to him. As an attorney at law specializing in business creation and licensing contracts. Seth says that while growing up in the campground, featured in the story, <laughs> actually, as his mother has already uh, told us, he encountered gypsies, moody cultists, televangelist Pat Buchanan, the FBI on multiple occasions, and an unhealthy amount of maple leaf speedos. <laughs> he thanks his mother. <laughs> For giving him life and agreeing to co-tell this story, he also blames her for a storybook childhood, one right out of the DSM manual. <laughs> for those of you who, like me, may be unfamiliar with those initials and what they mean, they stand for Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. And now, The Sting, part two. Come on up, Seth. <laughs> Well, that was a, a great outline, Mom. That's a good start. Uh, I didn't quite hear the apology I was looking for. Um, After how many years? Many. Yeah. Many, many years. Um, hopefully I can add some flavor to this story. I do want to thank you for the opportunity to tell the story again. It's a lot of fun, and it's so much cheaper than therapy. <laughs> Growing up on the, in the campground was like living in a carnival but without any rides or cotton candy. It was just weirdos. <laughs> it was, the campground was a transient paradise in our backyard, uh, located 
near the French-Canadian Riviera of Hampton Beach. (laughs) It was the hidden trailer park of Exeter, New Hampshire. Now, Exeter is kind of a priggish town. It's famous for Phillips Exeter Academy, for its prosaic pastime of silently judging one another, and for its exaggerated sense of historical self-importance. And I say this because I want to mention Exeter's annual tradition of celebrating 4th of July two weeks late every summer. And evidently, the reason for this is that the inhabitants of Exeter at the time were not informed that they were independent until two weeks later. So Exeter has traditionally always been a little behind the times. Looking back, and I apologize to Exeter, but to me, Exeter was like this Andrew Wyeth painting. You know, those beautiful but very idyllic 50s scenarios, those paintings, like of white people doing really white things, like collecting stamps or like playing croquet or taking a nap down by the old fishing hole. Well, the campground was like this festering little crack in the picture, (laughs) this secret alleyway to the back of the portrait where people cursed, where they judged each other loudly and into each other's face, and they still went fishing, but they often were drunk and fell in the water. (laughs) Well, over the years, the campground had many different slogans through local advertising, and I'm not sure if it was this year, but at one point, I think we had a little advertisement that said, come get away from it all. Ironically... This slogan kind of came back to bite us because the campground was a perfect place to get away from it all, including the authorities. (laughs) So on the day in question, I remember it was very hot and it was dusty. And I was all of 13 years old and I was almost six feet tall. In fact, I haven't grown since this day. (laughs) I think there's a correlation. And I had this really shaggy hair that grew over my eyes. And I would use that to hide from people, like a toddler would hide, you know, if I was feeling shy. And um, one reason I had this hair is because um, I, I loved my brother. And my brother and I were both metalheads. Like, we loved heavy metal music. So we had these awful, looking back, awful mullet haircuts and, like, heavy metal T-shirts. And um, at this age, just to let you know what I was like, I would argue with my other 13-year-old friends about which heavy metal band would win in a fight, like Aerosmith versus, <laughs> like, um, Poison. And I would always root for Def Leppard because they had this one-armed drummer because he got in this horrific accident, but he was a fantastic drummer. And I, I guess I always just really loved the underdogs. But anyways, my brother went to private school. I didn't see him for a while. He comes back, and he has... This beautiful long hair, his bangs were out, and he was a, suddenly a hippie. And I, I was startled. I had no idea. So, um, of course, I was going to be a hippie. Being from Exeter, I was a little behind. And so I was growing it out. So I was walking down the road I, from my parents' house. At the beginning, excuse me, the beginning of the campground, there is the campground office and a cabin. My brother was living at the cabin with three friends he brought home from prep school for the summer. And they had gone full-blown hippie. They had started this fashion trend of just wearing a tapestry as a skirt. No shirt, no shoes, no underwear, and definitely no deodorant. Just a tapestry. And 
typical of hippies, it's like when you see one, you have infestation because there would always be these other hippies with their VW buses, with their dogs, with their drums, and with their hacky sacks. So I was looking over there to see what was going on because this was the first thing that campers saw when they came into the campground. Wow. Well, it was early in the morning, so no hippies were out. Typical. <laughs> so I remember uh, navigating my way through the Tetris-like parking maze of the um, office parking lot. I remember there being like a fifth wheel parked diagonally, some motorcycles, some pop-up tents, and all sorts of vehicles, many of which having the license plate from Quebec. The office was really busy. It was going to be a busy weekend. It was very hot. And I remember taking advantage of my beanpole frame and my natural hair shades and just kind of coming into the door and then leaning against the wall till I could get to the side entrance to the back office. When I opened that, I saw my mother in her full multitasking glory. In one hand, she had a telephone in a very serious conversation. In the other hand, she had a walkie-talkie, also in a conversation. <laughs> Under the, her elbow, she had all sorts of files. And she was somehow still drinking coffee. <laughs> Black coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. She looked at me, nodded once, and then quickly put everything away. She sighed, looked me straight in the eyes, and said, Seth, we have a situation. Now, this is something I've literally heard hundreds of times in my life growing up in the campground. And then she started in on it. So here's the situation. We have armed criminals in the campground. The police are coming. Some are already here. There'll be some undercover in the... And then my 13-year-old brain shut off. <laughs> None of my life experience had prepared me for this conversation. And when I came back to my consciousness, I had this moment of clarity about my mother. She is a formidable woman. And I say this as a compliment, and she's very kind, she's, she's great, um, and she's very tough, and she's very organized, but she also has like this zen-like ability, like this strategic genius of the General Patton. <laughs> and like General Patton, she's willing to make sacrifices. <laughs> so she continues, she said, so this is the important part. When you see this man, and she showed me a picture of a scruffy-looking man that I recognized because he always bought Marlboro Reds in cash. And he also had a really cute daughter. She was one of uh, the few cute girls that I would uh, stoically hide behind my hair as I professionally uh, handled her transaction in awkward silence. So my mom continued. She said, your job is, when you see this man, you must, uh, in the radio, say that the ice cream is here. <laughs> ice cream is here. Okay, I just nodded. Before I knew it, I was outside bouncing on the tailgate of a small Nissan pickup truck driven by the grounds crew of the campground. It's nicknamed the Yucky Trucky because it was used to bring garbage throughout the day from the campground to the dumpster outside the campground. And while I was sitting there in a stupor, it hit me like a river of garbage water, which literally hit my pants, that this was a stupid idea. <laughs> what kind of plan is it to send a 13-year-old into the campground to go con the con man? What kind of mother would willingly sacrifice her baby son by sending him into the jaws of an unknown situation? And so we went down the dusty road, bouncing. And before I knew it, I was in front of the store. It was very hot, and 
I remember unlocking it and right away running to the ice cream to check that out. <laughs> and of course, it was completely full because we had just gotten the ice cream. And I was thinking, oh, there goes the plan. This is awful. <laughs> How, why would the ice cream be here if we have plenty of ice cream? I can't believe I'm going to die. So I, what can I do? And so I was like, I know what I can do. I can eat some ice cream. Because if I eat some ice cream, then there will be less ice cream, and then that would make sense when I say the ice cream's here. So <sighs> luckily it was hot, and so it made this chore a little bit more bearable. So I started eating ice cream and thinking about my mother and about the fact that I had a perfectly good older brother, <laughs> one who was older and wiser, and then it dawned on me. Maybe I was chosen because I actually wear pants. I don't wear a skirt. Maybe this is a job for me. Maybe she's counting on me. Maybe I'm expendable. <laughs> Anyways, I didn't know what to think. And so I started doing transactions. In the store, people bought wood, and they bought ice, and they bought cigarettes, and they bought candy. So much candy. So many little kids with their grubby hands and their little pennies buying candy. And um, although I was very awkward at 13 years old, I was quite a hit with a seven and eight year old crowd. And so they would often come in to play games with me. And I may have even taught them how to do three card Monty, you know, where you can hustle people with cards. I'm telling you, the campground was a heck of a place to grow up. But I shooed them away because this was a serious situation. I was attentively listening to the radio. And at one point I heard the static and I heard something about an accident something, an accident by the office. And I thought I heard the word hippie, like uh, one of the seasonals chiming in. Anyways, I didn't think much of it. The day got much hotter and much quieter. This time of day in this part of the summer, a lot of the transient campers are at the beach. And then I heard some yelling. And then I heard the static of the radio. And I look out the window and I see a man running. Not any man, the, one of the men. And First thing I do is I go and I lock the door and then I unlock the door and I get behind the desk because I have to call about the ice cream. And then I see him run right by the store. And then there's a lot of talking going on on the radio. And then I see someone who my mother referred to as Jack. I have a different name for him. He was an off-duty security uh, officer for our campground. I call him Napoleon McSurley. Napoleon was about five foot two, and what he lacked in height, he made up for in just confidence. He was about six beers into his day off, and he was running bare-chested after the wanted man. Now, I would like to say that I had the courage to follow this chase, and that I actually saw it firsthand, but I did not. But I can give, by way of an epilogue, uh, a synopsis of what happened. Um, Napoleon chased this man into the woods and into the swamp where he cornered the man, I believe, uh, against the river. And he tackled him. And he held him there until the police arrived. But the police were a little late because they did accidentally apprehend a poor, naked Canadian man <laughs> from the Hickory Comfort Station. Now, when the news article came out in the Exeter newsletter, this didn't appear. But... The accident that I had heard referred to on the radio was actually my brother. You see, my brother had come in, and he, I come to find out much later, kind of lost his mind. He thought the police were for him. <laughs> As a stereotypical hippie, he was expecting something in the mail, and he thought he was busted. 
So once he figured out what really happened, he was still really nervous, and he ended up backing into a, a, a camper's vehicle. There was no damage, but he told me that he did offer the police coffee, even though it was about 95 degrees at that point. And I should mention, he was only wearing a tapestry. <laughs> so this is the story of the sting. Uh, this is one of about a thousand stories that we have from this campground. And I accept your apology. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Carol. Next up, we have Nancy Brown, who recently retired from a career in education, but she is still teaching. She continues to work as a substitute teacher in Portsmouth, where she raised her children and has lived for a very long time. Nancy has been a local activist since the mid-60s. She's worked with the War on Poverty in Appalachia and as a Peace Corps volunteer in Central America. She has taught in many different settings, from Mayan villages to Exeter Academy. And being a teacher and an activist has defined Nancy's whole life. We'll find more about that in her story, <clears throat> Little Did I Know. Come up, Nancy. Um, well, thank you for coming tonight. Um, I'm originally from Wisconsin, although I have lived um, in New Hampshire for probably 40 years. Um, I came from a very working class family, um, three siblings. Uh, my parents uh, worked in factories and did a couple of other, that, other stories, but worked in factories um, on my, uh, some on my father's side, some on my mother's side. Um, my, on my father's side, my grandfather had a little Polish butcher store that was about the size of this room in um, West Dallas, which was a um, pretty working class community right outside of Milwaukee. And um, neighborhood full, I remember the neighborhoods uh, that I'd walk to school, um, walk to where my grandmothers lived. One lived in this direction, the other grandmother in the other direction. Very friendly people. Um, and when I go back to visit, I always ride through those neighborhoods. I have wonderful memories of those time as a child especially my grandparents and my dear friends and family as well. Um, Catholic grade school, that's another story. Um, um, public high school. And this is where the story begins. Um, sort of in high school, I was a senior, um, halfway through my senior year. And um, I had already had spent time with the, what they referred to as a counselor that would kind of talk to you about what you might be doing with your life. And the counselor was, um, when I thought about like who she really was, she really was a physical education teacher and worked part-time as a, as a counselor. And I remember her saying, well, I hope you're thinking about, um, you know, maybe following what your parents do. And, um, you know, there's, if you want to maybe go to night school or something, keep learning some things, but, you know, you get, a, get yourself a good job. And... Um, that was her recommendations, but I had these wonderful friends, which when I go back to Wisconsin, I still see some of those friends after all these years. And um, there, was a couple, there were a couple of teachers that, besides those friends, that kind of you know, encouraged me to think about doing some other things in my life than to following what my parents did and family members. And there was one in particular that would stop me in the hallway and... Um, talk to me and say, Nancy, 
you thought about what you're going to do with your life? I go, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And, um, and I got involved in quite a few things in high school. Um, so I was, I knew different groups of people from different neighborhoods. And um, I, 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 without knowing that I had a sense of um, how you could get people to come together, I would do that. And it took me years later to figure out that I, I could do that. Um, and this woman, Mrs. Clark, um, would stop me every time she'd see me. What are you thinking about doing, Nancy? I'd go, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And it was halfway through my senior year, and I remember her stopping me in the hallway. And I'm at my locker. You know, you open your locker, you take, put some books in, take some other books. And I had to get down the hallway to the class. She said, it's getting late, Nancy. You'll only have a few more months that you're going to be here, and you have to decide. I said, I, I, I mean, yeah, I'm thinking, thinking, are you thinking about going to college? And I remember stopping, looking at her and saying, how could I possibly do that? How could I possibly do that, Mrs. Clark? You know, first of all, my parents don't have any money. I work in a drugstore after school. I make about $15 a week. How could I possibly go to college? And there was this moment of silence. And she, I remember her staring at me. And she said, I'll tell you how you do it. You do it by yourself. You could do it if you wanted to do it. You do it by yourself, okay? You can go to class now. And she turned around and walked away. And I remember walking away down the hall and kind of looking at her. And then, you know, opening the door, going in the classroom, not paying any attention to what was going on in the classroom because of what just transpired in the hallway. And um, that night, and I remember, talk, remember talking with one or two of my friends that were also going off to college, but the others were not. Um, and I remember thinking about it, that night thinking about it, the next night thinking about it, and then waking up sort of like having an epiphany. She's right. I could do it myself. I'll figure out a way to do it. I could do it myself. So it was January now, the end of January, and I'm, my parents are in the kitchen, and I say... Um, Mom and Dad, I have something to tell you. My brother's in the living room. One of my sisters is in the living room. The other sister was in another room. And I say, Mom and Dad, I have something that I'd like to tell you. I've been thinking about something that, you know, I, I made a decision. And my mom, pretty strict woman, um, she kind of looked at me. My father was kind of helping her make whatever, I don't, whatever they're making for supper for dinner, and um, she kind of gave me a look, and I said, I, I, um, I've decided I'd like to go to college. I, I think I'd like to be a teacher. And um, so I think I, I'd, I'm going to ask if, um, you know, maybe I could start keeping my money, because one of the things you had to do in our household is you gave your money home. <laughs> you, whatever you had, you gave to your parents, and they'd give you some money back. And um, if I needed... Did, you know, those are other stories of how I got that money back. But um, anyway, I said, I'd like to keep that money because I don't have much time. And, and then I'll figure out a way to do this. I'm, I'm going to do it by myself. I'm not going to ask you for any money, mom or dad. I'm not going to ask you for, I know, it's not going to happen. My mom turned around and looked at me. My father kind of put his head down. And my mother said, who do you think you are? <laughs> Who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? 
And there was a term that she used that was, I'll never forget it. You're going to raise yourself above your learning? Mm. Who do you think you are? And I said, Mom, I'm not any different than you. It's going to be hard work. I'm going to have to figure this out. And teachers work really hard. You know, plus I'd have to figure out how I'm going to get through school. Just, you know, not a word. There's silence. You'll figure it out. You know, I remember making this comment and looking at me and then turning around and my dad not saying a word. He kind of looked at me and he didn't say anything. And so I went off. We had, remember the evening was pretty quiet. And I went to school the next day, told some of my friends that I'd said that to my parents and I didn't know what to expect from the response. When I got home that night from school, all my belongings were put out in the backyard. Everything from my room, everything out of the dresser drawers, out of the closet, in what was in the closet, my box of things that you save as a kid. And I was told, you think you're better than us? Figure out how you're going to do that. Go on, you're on your own now. And I remember standing there, and I already had a sense that um, this wasn't going to work. And a couple of my friends already knew that, in a sense, too. And one dear, dear friend, Tanya, um, all I had to do was to tell her, um, I'm not, you know, if I ever need you, I could call you. And um, Tanya, who already had a driver's license and was you know, driving her parents, her father's car, she and another friend, they came to pick me up, and they put all my stuff in their trunk and in the car. And I went to my grandma Annie's, my grandma and my auntie. My auntie, who worked in a factory for 47 years, my grandmother, who worked in a factory for half of her life besides doing other things, raising children and stuff. And they took me in. And I finished high school. And it was outside of the area, a good little distance from where I lived, because I could walk to school. I had wonderful you know, memories of walking to, to high school. You'd walk one block, and I'd meet with one girlfriend, and then two more blocks, I'd meet with another girlfriend. Sometimes in the winter, the hardy snowstorms we'd have, we'd, um, what do you do, climb the hill, the piles? It's king of the mountain. We'd be late for school because we'd climb the you know, mountaintop and then have to go sit in the office for a little while when we got to school, but the wonderful memories. Now, because I was living with my auntie and my uncle and my grandmother, they had taken my grandmother Annie in. She used to live in walking distance from where I lived. Um, I had to take the bus. I had to take a school bus. I mean, a, a regular, like, public bus. And I had to run out of their house in the morning, run across this big open lot, and get out on the road, 76th Street, and get on the bus. And my grandmother would always have these stand by the door, run, Nancy, run, the bus is going to go, you're going to be late for school, run. And I would run across and drop some of my things, whatever. But I finished high school. And um, my mother didn't come to my graduation, but my father did, and other family members did and stuff. And then I worked out going to Wisconsin State University. And um, I borrowed some money. And I borrowed money from the only one member of the family on my father's side that had some money. And he loaned money to me. And he helped me each year. So what I didn't make, working in the summer or working part-time in school, um, he loaned money to me. He was wonderful. He just recently passed away. He was in his 90s, and he was a ballroom dancer until he was 90, when I, 91, 92. When I'd go back to Wisconsin, I'd go ballroom dance. We'd be dancing, and people would say, 
how do you know Leonard? And I'd say, he's my uncle. And they'd say, he's tall as I am. And they'd say, he's the best dancer here in the ballroom. And he would teach me how to ballroom. And if you didn't know how to do it, he'd just say, just follow me, just watch. And he would just barely touch your shoulder. You know you need to turn to the right or spin around. And he was wonderful. And um, anyway, he loaned me money. I got through school, promised to pay him back. And I paid almost all of it back to him. Um, but after I graduated, instead of going off to teach, I had applied to go into the Peace Corps. And they wouldn't take me because I had a bad knee. I had had an accident my senior year, smashing into a tree, downhill skiing. Um, so instead, I joined what was called VISTA, which is volunteers. So it was a local Peace Corps. And I ended up working in Appalachia for, you know, two years after college, which my family, no one else could understand. How could you go through what you went through, borrow money, go to school, and then get a job where you get $30 a week? You know, but it was so incredible. That's another story. And then I became a teacher. And I've taught inner-city Boston, Farmington High School, Mayan Indian people. And I end up in, at Exeter Academy. But that's another story of the you know, range of living, you know, wonderful teaching experiences. And um, someday I'd like to speak about that, that all of our schools should be as good as the high quality of education as the academy. And I know those of you who know about the school would agree with that. But it's been such a gift to me that I figured out, because of these two teachers, that actually one in particular, Mrs. Clark, that never stopped poking at me in the hallway. You know, that I just went a different direction. I made friends with my mom. Um, forgave her. You know, I wasn't any better. It's just that I wanted to do something different. You know, my father apologized to me that he didn't speak up in the kitchen then. You know, they, the grandmothers, my siblings, and my father came to my um, college graduation, and they were so proud. You know, and I was so proud that they were there. A little disappointed that I took off and went in another direction, but, but it was such a gift. Teaching is a, one of the you know, most joyful things that a person can do if you really love being with kids and connecting with them and stuff. So um, my family did influence me in many ways. Um, it humbled me, what happened to me. Um, and obviously, you know, there are many people that are not necessarily connected very well with their families, but they have to carry on. And I did. And um, things went pretty well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. David Freiner is coming up next. <laughs> He's a retired Unitarian Universalist minister. He's also a storyteller and a poet who recently completed a term as co-chair of the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. David believes that storytelling is important because no matter how different our backgrounds or our circumstances, when we tell our own true tales, we begin to build bridges, connections with one another. A well-told story that is right on point can be the basis for healing oneself, for healing others in similar circumstances, and can even help heal entire communities. The title of his story, How a Good Boy Crashed Christmas, 
will take us back to his childhood spent in Great Neck, New York. David chose to tell this story because underlying this particular Christmas experience is a family dynamic that to this day continues to influence the way David thinks and operates in the world. Let's hear more about how a good boy crashed Christmas. Come on up, David. <laughs> this story was originally part of a true tales storytelling uh, whose theme was seeing the light. Although this story is about the opposite of that, not seeing the light on purpose, which is its subtitle. When I was eight years old, I crashed Christmas. It was not the end of the world exactly, but it sure felt like it to me. I was deeply distraught. And the worst of it, the very worst part of it is that it all happened for the very best of intentions. So, as Pat said, I grew up in Great Neck on the North Shore of Long Island. Great Neck, for those of you who are familiar with The Great Gatsby, is the actual town that the fictitious town of West Egg was based on. <clears throat> and there probably are and were Gatsby-style mansions in Great Neck, but we lived in a much more modest part of town. Uh, we lived in a small uh, uh, gray-colored, uh, gray shingled house on a small corner lot with uh, brown old picket fence. <clears throat> and um, so that was quite different from the Gatsby-type experience. <clears throat> All of our bedrooms were on the second floor. You'll see later on that that's important. <clears throat> My father was of German stock, and that's relevant to this story because, well, what you've heard about Germans is largely true. <laughs> we are logical, rational, by the numbers, color inside the lines kind of people. In fact, in my somewhat rebellious teenage years, I used to joke to my buddies that before he could go to the bathroom, my father had to make a list. Let's see, shut the door, check, lift up the lid, check, unzip the fly, check. <clears throat> but <clears throat> being the oldest of two boys, from a very early age, I was always brought up to be a good boy and do the right thing. The problem is, it's not always exactly clear what the right thing is to do. Now, in our house at Christmas, my brother and I always hung our stockings by the chimney with care, with exacting care. In fact, my father would measure a third of the way from the left end of the mantle and put the hook for my brother's stocking, and then a third of the way from the right end of the mantle and put the hook for my stocking. And he explained that the reason for that is that that way, when Santa came down the chimney, he could go right out through the <clears throat> between the stockings without getting tangled up in them, um, which is a logical, <laughs> rational, good German approach. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> in my house, 
we had a special arrangement with Santa Claus. My brother and I would hang our stockings by the chimney with care, and then we would go up Christmas Eve, we'd go up to bed, and sometime later on, Santa Claus would come and would fill our stockings with little toys and games, and then just before he left, Santa would bring the stockings up to our rooms, put my brother's stocking on the end of his bed, put my stocking on the end of my bed, and that way we would have them available to us when we woke up bright and early Christmas morning so that my parents could sleep in, who had spent most of Christmas Eve night putting tab A into slot B and wrapping the presents uh, in colorful wrapping paper and putting them all under the Christmas tree. The idea in our house was that we would play with the toys and, and just uh, kind of keep ourselves busy until they awoke, we'd get dressed, go downstairs, and we'd walk into the living room, and there would just be this magical moment with the Christmas tree all lit up and the uh, colored presents wrapped underneath the tree. It was just a wonderful, magical time, and it was a, just a great surprise, and that was really the tradition of Christmas morning. <laughs> that Christmas... <laughs> All I really wanted, and I wanted this more than anything in the world, was a pair of stilts. <laughs> now, if you think about it, stilts presents a little bit of a problem for Santa Claus because how's he going to get them down the chimney and out into the living room? But that wasn't my problem. That was Santa's problem, and Santa was magical, so it really wasn't any problem at all. But that's what I wanted. I wanted that pair of stilts. So, <clears throat> early Christmas morning, woke up, looked down at the foot of my bed, no stocking. <laughs> Slipped into my brother's room, looked at the foot of his bed, no stocking. Well, what was going on here? What had taken place? Had Santa forgotten about the arrangement? And, and more to the point, what were we supposed to do? <clears throat> there are certain things that couldn't happen. I could not wake up my parents early. That was strictly verboten. And by the same token, I couldn't go downstairs and retrieve the stockings, which were probably still there, because then that would ruin the surprise, and the surprise was the whole point of Christmas morning in our house. So I went back to my room and got into my bed and used my eight-year-old problem-solving brain <laughs> to try to come up with the perfect solution. And I did. I would go downstairs with my eyes closed, Aww. reaching in front of me, Aww. feeling my way across the living room to where the stockings probably were, and then I'd get them down and turn around and head back to the stairs and go on up, put my brother's stocking by the foot of his bed, take mine into my bed. We would both be able to play with our little toys and games until my parents woke up. And I literally wouldn't have seen the surprise of Christmas because my eyes were closed. The perfect plan. So I set right out, 
went over to the top of the stairs, closed my eyes. Now, working my way down the stairs wasn't so bad, because I had the stair railing, and I managed to turn left into the living room without tipping over any lamps or tables, and I was doing pretty well. There was just one problem. <clears throat> exactly right in the middle between my brother's stocking and my stocking was a seven-foot-tall pair of stilts, which I walked right into. I crashed the stilts. The stilts went over to the left. They crashed into the tree. The lights came off the tree. The Christmas balls crashed down. <coughs> My parents woke up. There was yelling and screaming. My eyes were now wide open because I had really, really screwed up big time. I was in deep trouble. Seriously colored outside the lines. <laughs> so my parents rushed downstairs uh, to see what damage had been done and what was going on. And I just began to cry and sob with these deep, air-gulping, deep <laughs> sighs and trying to explain, Santa forgot the stocking. <laughs> I came down with my eyes closed so I wouldn't ruin the surprise and I was reaching for the stockings and I hit the stilts into the tree and <laughs> crashed the lights and, the, and I'm so, so, so sorry. And I cried and cried and cried until I was just cried out and just sort of whimpering in a corner at the end. I don't actually remember my parents' reaction, <laughs> but it mustn't have been too bad because they came through in a way and, and nothing really awful happened to me. Indeed, I do think that probably when they were out of earshot and realized what it was I was trying to do and why, and the house hadn't burned down, they probably had a pretty good chuckler too at my expense. What I do remember, and remember so clearly, are those feelings of fear and failure and deep personal shame. My parents quickly set about repairing Christmas. The tree hadn't fallen all the way over as it was in the corner. It was sort of listing to port, and so my father was able to put it back up and stabilize it, and he set about putting the lights back on the tree. My mother swept up all the broken glass ornaments and rearranged the ones that were remaining on the limbs to fill in the various gaps. And pretty soon, they had pretty much salvaged Christmas. And <clears throat> then they arranged the presents under the tree, and we sat down, and we had breakfast, and then we opened our gifts <clears throat> but I will never forget, I think as long as I live, the feeling, the deep, air-gulping, sobbing feeling of on a personal level having crashed Christmas and caused personally and directly a kind of catastrophe. That feeling has stayed with me for a long, long time. In fact, you can tell it's still with me now. The coda to this is that my parents didn't punish me by taking away the stilts. They allowed me to keep them. And 
they said that I could keep them as long as I learned to use them responsibly. Well, that summer, I learned how to use those stilts, and I was the best stilt walker on our block. Okay, okay, okay. I was the only stilt walker on our block. <clears throat> but I did learn to use them. They were a great pair of stilts, and on a, any given summer day, you could see me walking up and down our little street and around the corner and back again. <clears throat> they were great stilts, and I was pretty great on them. I love those stilts. But to this day, I will never forget how I came to have them. <laughs> that holiday season, when I was eight, and I managed to crash Christmas, all while trying to be a very good boy and do the exact right thing by not seeing the light on purpose. It's my uh, pleasure to introduce our next storyteller, who is Pat Spaulding. Pat Spaulding is a retired puppeteer who now has the good fortune of doing pretty much what she wants. <laughs> she writes and tells stories. She's a drum majorette with the leftist marching band and the MC of True Tales Live. Tonight, Pat will tell us about her dad's extreme frugality. He was a man who acted like and appeared to be a curmudgeon, a cranky Yankee who just wouldn't listen. But fat Pat found that at heart level, her father was a generous man. And although he would not show it, her dad was listening and always heard her. Her story's title is, What Difference Does It Make? Pat, come on I'm going to tell this story conversationally, mostly, because um, my dad and I would talk. And as I wrote and practiced this story, I just heard his voice, and I spoke to him, and we talked back and forth. So that's going to be most of the story. But a little of the setup. Uh, I was born and raised in New Hampshire. I never left. I've lived here all my life. And I consider myself to be a Yankee, <laughs> like it or not. Um, I do have a bit of a sense of frugality. You know, I have always have to think about of less. You know, like you could use less, but that abundant stuff, it doesn't come naturally. Now, my dad, <laughs> who... Uh, <laughs> Also lived in New Hampshire for all of his 88 years, taught me everything I know about being a Yankee. He was extremely frugal. But I know that he would not consider himself to be a Yankee, because that would be to presume that there's another way to be. Oh. <laughs> and he didn't think so. About 20 years ago, he sold the fourth New Hampshire home that he had ever owned to build a new one next door to me in Rye. <laughs> this is a local story. And he was 79 years old at the time and had been a widower for about 15 years. Um, I wanted things to be in place before some 
major health crisis hit. Dad, he just wanted to build a new house. So this mutual decision threw the two of us back together into a father-daughter relationship that involved daily contact. <laughs> now, often I would go over to his house and make supper. Sometimes, well, even more often, frankly, he'd make supper and I'd go over there to eat it. Not every night, but, you know, fairly regularly. So just one night, I was in his kitchen cooking an onion. And he looks at me and says, can't you use a smaller pan? Uh -huh. Well, it's just a frying pan, Dad. Yeah, I know. It's only cooking an onion. Well, yeah, but, I mean, I'm, I'm going to add garlic and peppers, and I need some flat surface to push it around on. <laughs> well, can't you push an onion around in a smaller pan? <laughs> yeah, but what difference does it make? Well, you gotta wash the pan after you use it. You mean you think it's easier to wash a smaller pan than a bigger one? Of course it is. Makes a smaller job. I'll wash the pan, Dad. Nah, it's my kitchen. I'll wash the pan. Yeah, but I want to use a bigger pan, so I'll wash the pan. Well, don't get yourself all worked up about it. Nah, do what you want. What difference does it make? And so ended another one of our daily conversations. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, we're both sitting across from each other at Dad's cluttered kitchen table, and we're stirring our martinis with toothpicks. <laughs> Mine pierced two olives, Dad's pierced one. We're both looking out the window at the back deck where about five inches of late March snow is accumulating. And uh, Dad says, still coming down. And then he lifts his martini glass, says, to snow. To another day of skiing, I add optimistically. Nah, too late in the season for that. <laughs> Clink. We talk about nothing much for another 10 minutes. And then he says, eh, you're probably not going to like this. Probably not, Dad. <laughs> but try me. Well, you know that old uh, double bed that I've been using? Yeah, you mean the one you and my had at the other house? Yeah. Make any difference to you if I sawed off the end of it? <laughs> Why? Well, you're always complaining if I do anything to change something around here, you know, try to sell something or... But it, no, no, Dad, I don't... I don't mean why would it make a difference to me. I mean, why do you want to saw off the end of the bed? You mean the footboard? Yeah, yeah, I guess that's what you call it. Yeah, I, I can't make the bed. It's a... It, that, that footboard, there's a spindly thing, those little, I, I can't lift up the mattress, pinches my hands, that ah, the thing's a poor design, nothing but a piece of junk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all it's going to be if you saw off the footboard. <laughs> I know you'd get yourself all worked up. You don't care about none of the stuff I got around here till I say I want to get rid of it or change it or, you know, sell something, then you get all upset. <laughs> Well, Dad, <laughs> I mean, 
It's an antique spool bed. Ah, it's an antique piece of junk. <laughs> Dad, it, it's a bed that you and Ma used to sleep in. Well, that hasn't happened for a good long while. <laughs> I let that set for a moment, and then I said, can't we move one of the single beds downstairs? No, I don't want to go moving beds up and downstairs. Why can't I just soft the one that's already down here? Because it's an antique spool bed. Dad, look. If one of the single beds will make it easier to make the bed, I mean, you can move around it, and uh, you know the the sheets are. Look, I can I can come and help make your bed once a week. That'll be fine. No, I can make my own darn bed. You don't need to be coming over to do that. That thing's gonna be just as hard to make up as this one. No, it won't. Well, it's. It's got a footboard on it, too. Mind if I saw that one off? <laughs> it's not an antique, Dad. You know what? If it makes you feel any better, fine. Saw the damn thing off. So, after dinner, I go to do the dishes, and Dad heads upstairs to take apart one of the single beds. Apparently I'd convinced him this was gonna be a good thing. And um, so when I get up there, he's got the mattress and box string spring against the wall, leaning against the wall. And they were all pretty dusty, everything's pretty dusty. So I say, um, I'll go downstairs and get the vacuum cleaner. And he says, nah, I'd just rather sweep those off. You would. Okay. <laughs> so I headed downstairs, got the vacuum cleaner anyway. And when I returned, Dad is meticulously brushing dust bunnies off the edge of the mattress and the box spring and the frame into his dustpan. And I told him, I'll vacuum the carpet while you're fishing that. He says, well... Can't you just sweep it? Sweep the carpet? Well, no, I, I mean, I'm gonna vacuum it. And he says, why fill the vacuum cleaner with dust when you can just sweep it into a dustpan and throw it away? <laughs> fill the vacuum cleaner with dust? Dad! You think that's a bad thing? <laughs> well, it just means you gotta change the bag sooner. You gotta go to the store and buy a new one. Go to all the trouble and expense to put it in besides that. I don't care what this place looks like. I'm the only one living here. Uh, what difference does it make? It makes a difference to me, Dad. It makes a difference to me, because I can't stand to see you turn into a dusty old man living on that side of dusty old house, and don't tell me I'm getting myself all worked up about nothing, because it makes a difference. It just does. I watched him bend down 
to sweep dust bunnies off the carpet for several long moments. And then he stood with the ease of a much younger man and stared out the window. Snow was still falling. And he turned his watery blue eyes on me and asked, You doing anything tomorrow? It's supposed to be sunny. I know. I said it was too late in the season, but maybe if we get an early start before the snow gets all soft and too melted. You want to go skiing? Yeah, Dad, it's not too late. Let's go skiing. And that was my dad. Thank you. Last up, we have one of my personal heroes. His name is John Levering. John is a retired biology and media production teacher who lives in Dover with his wife, Melanie. He collects old-time radio programs and restores antique radios as a hobby. For 13 years, John volunteered at Portsmouth Community Radio as host of Audio Theater and as an audio engineer for the program Don't Dis My Ability. Also as producer of True Tales Live. In August of 2016, his interest turned to Force of Public Media TV, where he is now a co-host of Don't Dis My Ability and the producer of True Tales Live. In the story he'll share tonight, we'll meet John as a seven-year-old boy who spent a day sealed up in a small oceanfront cottage with his extended family as one of the worst hurricanes to ever hit New Hampshire tore through the seacoast. That experience showed him how three generations of his family reacted to the same event in different ways. <laughs> the title of his story is Hurricane Carol. Come on up, John. Thank you, Pat. A long time ago, it was. It was August 31st, 1954. I was uh, seven years old at that time. Do the math and see. And and I was in a cottage with uh, my parents, my mother, and father, and my sister, who was thirteen, and my grandmother, who was visiting us for the summer. She would come up for four weeks from New Jersey. Uh, and her name was Gertrude. We'll talk about Gertrude in a little while. Uh, oh, will we talk about Gertrude? Uh, anyway, uh, we were in this cottage right on Fourth Street in Ham excuse me in Hampton Beach. Fourth uh, Street uh, was the, the North Beach, but not that far up, uh, and we still had the old pebblestone seawall. We didn't have the metal or the the uh, concrete; it was just the stone, like it is at Genesee Beach and, and Rye, and that's what was in front of us. And I remember that we had Route One One A, which was only two two lanes at the time, and uh, the way you got over the uh, stone. A wall really was to put a boardwalk down because the rocks would get so hot in the summer, and also it was on you know you could fall quite easily. We'd go up the boardwalk one side and then down the other. But anyway, we had this cottage that was 
very a real cottage in, in the sense of uh, the word. Uh, inside the cottage, you could look up at the rafters. There was no ceiling. It was that type of cottage. It was only three rooms, two, two bedrooms, and then a kitchen, living room, dining room combination, and a little tiny bathroom, one, to one toilet in it, no sink. We had to wash up in the kitchen sink. And uh, we had a porch on the front of the cottage, and it faced the ocean. Well, on the 31st of August, 1954, when I got up in the morning, uh, I heard my parents the day before actually talking about this thing called a hurricane was coming. Didn't really know much about it, but they were talking about it was going to be uh, dangerous, probably a lot of a lot of wind and rain and, and all this kind of stuff. And my 13-year-old sister, oh, did I mention? Her name was Carol. <laughs> <laughs> so I was having a good time with that. Carol, oh, she's going to come and cause all kinds of trouble. Because being seven, I was her little brother, and I loved to get her in trouble, and she loved to get me in trouble. So we were arguing and laughing and kidding about it. And we got up in the morning, and the wind was blowing a little bit, and it was raining. Now, Gertrude, back to Gertrude, my grandmother was probably about 65, 67, somewhere in that vicinity. And she was uh, up there for the summer. She was more or less slumming. Uh, she lived in, in uh, New Jersey with my aunt, and my aunt was kind of well-to-do, and my grandmother was uh, always dressed to the nines. Her hair was done. She had, um, her, her fingernails were always manicured and painted. She wore, she wore jewelry in the fall. She always had a fur on, wrapped around her neck. Peter would have loved her. Um, she, she was just kind of stuck up to me. I never felt very warm or close to her. Well, she was there, and it was, she was supposed to go back to New Jersey right after Labor Day, so this was almost the end of the summer. And that morning, when I got up, she was sitting in a rocking chair in the middle of the room, the living room, and she had a pocketbook, a leather pocketbook that was about the size of a suitcase, and it was white. Now, her fingernails were bright red and manicured, so she had her fingernails on that white pocketbook, and she was sitting in a rocking chair. She had a raincoat on, and she was rocking back and forth in the rocking chair. Hi, Nana. She's rocking in the rocking chair. And my mother was running around trying to get my father. She said, we should, need, we should get out of here. This is going to be a bad storm. And there was a knock at the door. My father went over. It was a police officer. And he said, you should evacuate. We're bringing people to the Hampton Academy. Uh, the storm is going to be bad. My father had just bought his only new car that he ever owned. He lived to be 90, and he went to Scott Pontiac on uh, Lafayette Road, and he bought a uh, Pontiac Star Chief. And I will show you the Pontiac Star Chief. <laughs> it's packed out in front of the car. Now, that's a black and white picture, but I just wanted to show you what it looked like. It was oh, really, wow. was a cool car, and he loved that car. Now, it was parked right out there where the wind could blow, the sand could sandblast it, the foam with the salt water could go all over his car, and he was more worried about that than he was anybody else or the building, and he said to the police officer, we'll stay, and he was going to, my father was captain of the ship, and uh, he was going to go down, and we were going with him. <laughs> so... He, he spent, at the beginning of the storm, he spent most of his time 
going out moving the car. My mother would say, where's your father? And I said, daddy's outside. And he'd, he'd back the car around one side of the building downwind from, you know, so the wind couldn't hit. The wind would shift to the northeast. He, he'd back the car. And he was out moving the car, trying to keep it up. So as, as we were, the storm progressed. My sister and I were still kind of kidding around. There's Nana. Back and forth. And then something happened. We had windows that opened like a cupboard door. They, didn't, they weren't sash windows. And a big gust of wind came, and the windows in one of the bedrooms flew open, and the curtains started blowing, and the rain started coming in. And it scared us, because it was a bang, and they, they opened up. And my father came back in at that time, and my mother said, the windows are, are breaking open. So he's going along with wood trying to nail up the, uh, win the windows to keep them from opening. And then he noticed the wind shifted, and he went back out <laughs> and moved the car. And while we were in the house, this cottage was built on cedar post. They didn't have foundations. They, did, they dug holes and put concrete in there and put the posts on them. So you had a place underneath it, uh, a, a crawl space, and we had the porch on the front. The wind was getting so bad. I mean, I didn't know at the time, but it was about 80-mile-an-hour gusts or so right off the water. And it was hit the cottage, and the whole cottage started to shake. And I remember we had lights hanging down, and they were swinging. Oh. And then the cupboard door opened up in the kitchen, and some of the uh, cup fell out. So my mother was trying to take the cupboard doors open, taking all the dishes out. The windows are swinging. These, these windows are flying open. My father comes in from the car, and he's looking up at the roof, and we kept hearing this rip and slap and sound like this, all of a sudden, shingles going off. And we could see the daylight coming through the cracks, and the water sat's coming down. So my mother's running around trying to put pans under the water. Soon the pans were all used up, and we had more leaking than we had pans. And so she started putting towels down. She's <laughs> And by now... I was getting, I was, I didn't think it was funny anymore. King Carol was funny. I remember the thing that really got to me. I looked out the window and I saw the power lines, the, phone, the, the phones, the uh, poles had tipped over to about a 45 degree angle. And the wires were doing this and they would hit and the sparks would fly everywhere. And the ocean water was running down the street, all the foam. Pieces of shingles and clapboards were flying by in the wind. And my father said, Nana, you and the two kids in the bathroom. The bathroom was about four by four. It was really small. It had to get my grandmother's pocketbook in. And she sat down on the toilet. Thank goodness the, the seat was down. And she sat down on the toilet with her raincoat. Now she had a rain. A kerchief on and was rocking and my father put us in there because we only had one little window up near the top and he thought if the windows were breaking we were out of the way of getting hit so but we couldn't see anything he shut the door it was kind of dark and my grandmother was my sister was sitting by her right leg and I was sitting by her left leg and we were on the floor and my grandmother's doing this, and it's not a rocking chair now. It's, it's a toilet. 
And it had a water pipe that ran up. And every once in a while, the wind would, and the house would crack and shake. And she'd grab onto the water pipe. Hold on. And, and, and I can remember the red fingernails against the white pocketbook. Because I was sitting there. When I looked up, that's what I saw. These red fingernails against the white pocketbook. All of a sudden, there was a tremendous crash. The screech of nails pulling out of wood, cracking and snapping, and then a tremendous bang. What had happened, I didn't know this at the time, but our porch, the wind got underneath the porch roof, tore the whole roof off from the porch. It went up with its post, part of the stairs, went over the top of our house, down the other side, and slammed through the house next door. The sound was like a train, wind, rain, screaming, and snapping. I lost it. I started crying. I needed some comfort. Here's my grandmother. You know, I'm sitting there, my sister's crying, and I grabbed my grandmother by the leg, and I said, Nana, Nana, are we going to be all right? And she's doing it, and she stopped and said, Oh, Jesus, God, we're all going to die. <laughs> Hurricane Carol. <laughs> me up even though I know it's coming. <laughs> you should leave Gertrude on the table over there so people could get a closer look as they leave. Well thanks for com coming everybody and if, um, if you have any questions we'd be happy to answer them just you know but I'm gonna let everybody go because it's the time you know that the library closes and so all that sort of thing. So thanks for coming.